I'm AJ Bianco, host of Reflect Ed, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to My EdTech Life. I'm just so excited to have you guys here on this beautiful, beautiful Saturday morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you always for your support. And again, today we have an amazing show. We, I'm just really excited, and I am really, really pumped up to have this amazing guest here today. And like I was talking to Brian, you know, uh, several years ago, I started following Brian uh, because of coding and the work that he did with coding. So I'm just really excited that now I have the opportunity to sit down and have a chat with Brian, who is here today and just, you know, see what what he's working on. We're going to talk about Codebreaker. You definitely don't want to miss out on that because you're going to get to hear just some amazing things that Codebreaker is doing. So let's just go ahead and get right into it. So Brian, thank you so much for being here today. How are you doing today? Amazing. Thanks, brother. Appreciate uh, your time here on a beautiful Saturday Saturday morning from Southern Ontario, Canada. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, it's always. And we've got already Shannon here on the show. Good morning, friends. Happy Saturday. Good morning. Good morning, Shannon. Shannon was on the show Wednesday. And so we're just excited. Thank you so much, Shannon, for being here and sharing your support. So that episode better. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, Brian. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Just introduce yourself to some of our audience members that may not know who you are. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and your context in education. And if you can add something interesting about yourself that most people don't know. My name is Brian Aspinall and I am a giant dork. This is probably my 16th year in education. I've been in higher ed for the last four. I taught elementary school prior to that for uh, 12 years. My undergrad is computer science, so admittedly, all things coding uh, is near and dear to my heart. It's been a passion project of mine for a decade and a half. And I guess something people don't know about me that I, I really enjoy sharing is that my great-great-great-grandfather was the first black mayor of Toronto, and he was very uh, influential in bringing public service to the mass, not just the rich and famous back in those days if you had coin, you got hydro and water services to your house. And he was a big voice in bringing that to everybody. Ah, there you go. He was, a, he, was a, he was a code breaker a century ago. How's that? How's that? Look at that. Code breaker was already like just getting going. That was the, that little spark right there. Yeah. That is awesome, Brian. And so I'm just thrilled that you're here just because of the passion that you exude, just the, the, the refreshing honesty and just the how raw you are. And I know we talked about that, you know, with uh, Shannon on Wednesday too, but I mean, it's just amazing, you know, the things that you're doing and of course what the years of education that you've put in and what you've been able to accomplish and do for coding to get students to have that computational thinking and, and those tools. So thank you for doing that because that was definitely very influential uh, very early on in my career as well, you know, before transitioning. So let's talk a little bit about Codebreaker and in your own words, you know, being Mr. Codebreaker himself, let us know what exactly is Codebreaker EDU? Oh, Codebreaker EDU is a force not to be reckoned with. That I will tell you uh, right now. We are a group of like-minded, pushing against the grain educators who tend to find each other on the fringe, if you will. We feel we're all kind of on the outside looking in, wanting to make change, do the best for kids all over the globe. In a nutshell, we want to amplify the stories that need to be heard, the stories that need to be told, not the bloated platitudes, not the rah, rah, rah shit, the real deal stuff that needs to happen in education, that needs to change in education. And we surround ourselves with those people that push us and that challenge us, that challenge us in order to make change for kids everywhere. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's excellent. That is amazing. Amazing. So tell us how many people right now are involved with Codebreaker EDU? Oh, my goodness. Our, our inner team is, is I could count on one hand and our extended network has got to be 40 people strong now, classroom leaders, 
school leaders, district leaders from all over the world. We uh, were about to partner with a teacher in Australia. We've got people from Jordan. We've got Canadians, Americans. We are just hopefully taking the world by storm. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. So I'm really excited about that. So let's talk a little bit more, you know, some of the things that you said and just expand on them or expand on them a, a bit more, you know, just shaking up education. And, and as you know, of course, we know with COVID, you know, the education landscape got shaken up and so on. And, you know, change, we're, we're seeing some of maybe the deficiencies that were there that maybe have been magnified a little bit more. Maybe we're seeing some good, some some things that have been thriving. But as far as uh, Codebreaker, you know, your ultimate goal, you said you're making connections. You've got people all over. Let's talk a little bit more about that as far as shaking up education. What are some things that you, through your experience, have seen that you feel, it, you know, because of this, it's time for change? What What are some things that Brian is thinking about right now? Uh, I'm going to speak truthfully and uh, show my vulnerability, I guess. In my first five years of teaching, I built and sold three apps. And I'm not celebrating that. I mean, I'm celebrating that, of course, that they were acquired uh, from other ed tech companies all across the world. But my first app started to get some publicity at the local level, and myself and my students were featured uh, on the local TV. Now, at the time, social media was blocked. I'm going back well over 10 years. So social media is blocked in schools in one context. And then in the other context, I'm sitting in on PD that says we need to keep teacher kids about digital citizenship. And I'm like, well, this doesn't make any friggin' sense because we're telling kids that Twitter and Facebook are bad in one conversation. And then in the other one, you want me to teach them how to behave online. So it dawned on me to try and build like an educational friendly app. So I built almost a Twitter for schools. It was called Twidgicate. We drove it to 200,000 users in just over a year and a half. And of course, my students are using this app and we're we're talking to each other outside of school hours, which at the time was a bit of a novel idea and a little bit risky for a lot of people. If you think back over 10 years ago, it was don't friend students on Facebook, don't DM kids, don't talk to kids in social spaces outside school. And I did the exact opposite. In fact, I built the walled garden platform that allowed me to talk to kids outside of school. And as this app started to gain a lot of traction, Boy, this is a long time ago. A lot of people don't know this about me. That was the first iteration of Brian Aspel on Codebreaker. Wouldn't you know, I get pulled into my school district and, and I'm being questioned about a conflict of interest. And that's when it hit me that rather than trying to celebrate the innovation of a teacher who's built an app that is being used globally in 2007, like a long time ago, it, relatively speaking, a long time ago, but in the NTEC world, in terms of building startups, that was fairly new. And I thought, what in the hell? Like you're 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 shutting down the the celebration of the innovation and the fact that we're being showcased on the news. And no offense to them, the reality was the liability, the fear. It was all it was all new. It was all foreign. But that's when I really realized that something needed to give and something needed to change. And that was where I made the decision. I'm either going to become an administrator who runs a school district in a way where we celebrate all this crap, or I'm getting the hell out of here because I beat to the, my own drum and uh, rules are not necessarily uh, something I tend to live within other, other than safety and all of those pieces. So I sold that first app. I, I mean, people started knocking on my door with acquisitions and I thought I either need to join this full time or keep doing my classroom full time. I couldn't do both. And I was very early in my teaching career. I didn't have a lot of experience. So the, I, the thought of pursuing an ed tech startup wasn't something I could fathom. So I wanted to see other people take it and run. In fact, uh, at one time, our app was bigger than Edmodo. I love to share that because I remember talking to the founders of Edmodo back in those days, uh, trying to see if we could collaborate. Man, that was a lifetime ago. Uh, so anyway, after that, I realized that I can teach my young people. I live in very rural Ontario. And if I can teach my students that you don't have to go to Toronto or Vancouver or even Ottawa to chase the dot-com dream, I did it. I did it in my backyard in a little town of 1,500 people. You can do it too. And that's how I started to integrate coding at school. And it wasn't learn to code experiences. It was, I'm going to teach you math, social studies, science, language using code. And if that code tool is not for you, that's fine. Do green screen, do something else. 
but I want to expose everybody to coding because much like broccoli, you don't know if you like it until you try it. And I felt, and I still feel very strongly if we don't expose our students to these opportunities, we remove the decision on their part as to whether that's something they wish to pursue. So coding in my classroom as a byproduct of teaching and learning my curriculum was something I've always done and admittedly grabbed my surfboard, you know, 2007, 2008, and I hit that hour of code wave and I didn't look back. Um, I took a leave of absence from my school board for one year and I joined Microsoft Canada. I was working for a third party professional development um, organization that worked strongly with uh, Microsoft. And so my job was to do computational thinking and coding through Minecraft experiences. And it was a great year. I had a great time that year. But at the end of that year, I realized there's there's too, there's too much opportunity. There's too much potential. And there is just a hell of a lot more that I need to do that I want to do that I won't be able to do in my classroom. You can only be out of your classroom so many days. And, you know, at the end of that first year, I probably had 15 or 20 keynotes booked. So the the thought of going back to the classroom, I just, I just couldn't. So I took an extended leave of absence in year two, thinking I'd go back after year two and wouldn't, you know, in year three, I was like, no, I got to keep going. I got to keep going. And uh, that's when my school district said, okay, you need to make a choice here. You can't keep doing a leave. So uh, I resigned and I joined higher ed where I've been the last four or five years when I finished my master's, the faculty of ed said, you got to stay. Nobody knows how to teach this. So I've been teaching e-learning, believe it or not, before COVID and integration of information, computer technology, essentially how to integrate technology and computer science into our classroom. So I've been teaching teachers at four different faculties of ed while building the Codebreaker experience. Whew. Fast forward, March 13th. 2020. Everybody remembers Friday the 13th. I was yeah. standing with Chris Woods, aka Daily STEM. I was the morning keynote at the McCall Conference, the Michigan Association of Computer Users and Learning. And they told us to go home. They said, we're done. The NBA just shut down. And I was like, wait a second. Um, I got a keynote. I want to talk to these people. Joel Sanfilippo is here. I want to talk to these amazing educators. And they said, no, pack your shape, go home. And uh, that was the day I saw two years of consulting come to an immediate halt. March 14th, 2020 was the day I looked at my wife and said, do I need to go back to the classroom? Do I need to pursue a leadership position? Or is this the universe telling me it's go time? And March 14th, 2020 was our biggest pivot where we decided that for the last three or four years, uh, I'd been consulting and doing keynotes all over the world. I did a Minecraft panel in Budapest on Microsoft's dollar. And that was the day we decided... It's time to amplify the stories of everybody else. The universe just shut you down, quote unquote, so to speak. Everybody's coding these days. Maybe it's time for a next step, both for you professionally, individually, and as an organization. And that's when Codebreaker moved from just solely consulting in computer science to let's push against the grain at the leadership level. Let's go back and find all the people I've met on the road the last five years and amplify their visions and their stories because they are doing amazing things as well. Fast forward a year, here we are now. We've got over 30 books in the catalog in 15 or 16 months. The consulting is through the roof because we're all comfortable with virtual now. And our authors, our people are now consulting. And that's the scaling we were looking for. We want to find the amazing educators with amazing stories to tell, and we want to amplify them and shout from the rooftops to all of our other partners that we have in the education space. That was a long history of Codebreaker, but here we are today. And for those watching, this has been an incredible week. I was offered two positions for the spring semester, and I turned them down. We are officially 100% Codebreaker through and through. Uh, our side project, our passion project is now our main hustle and it, it's go time. Oh man, Brian, this is amazing. I mean, just the, your energy, your story, you talk, you, I mean, you covered so much, you know, and I think that these, there are many lessons here that you have um, shared many things that as educators or even just even personal, it doesn't mean, I mean, this applies to everybody cross curricular, just like your coding uh, process. And that's something that I believed in, in classroom too, as well, you know, Coding is not just for science. It's that you can use it for math. You can use it for English. You can use it for everything. And that's one of the things that I followed 
and did doing as well. But just the way that you see things and the way that you were able to see the potential and what you're saying is seeing and finding these educators that are also maybe just kind of a little bit either hindered, maybe a little bit shy, or maybe they have a lot to offer, but their voices haven't been amplified. And that is one thing that I love about what you're doing. What Codebreaker is doing is you're giving that voice to those teachers that, you know, oftentimes we're not being heard to those educators that have great ideas, but have never been heard because they fall under the, well, this is the way that's always been done. Yeah. And nobody wants to listen to that because this is the way it's always been done. And yeah. when you push against the grain and bring in something different and something fresh, it's like, oh my goodness. It's like, what is this? No, 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 we can't have that because that's getting, that's getting us out of our comfort level. Well, that's where change happens. That's where innovation happens. You got to push those boundaries. And I think right now is the time for, you know, educators and, you know, even district leaders, administrators to see that there's potential in change and it's good change. And so what you're doing and what everybody else at Codebreaker is doing is something that is great in connecting those educators, amplifying their voices. And of course, now, like you said, they're consulting, they're sharing their passion and they're bringing it to other educators as well. So I'm really excited about what you're doing and the future of Codebreaker. So this is just amazing. This is awesome sauce. I, you know what? I'm really proud of the fact that we, we don't want to work with people just because they have 10,000 followers. I don't friggin' care. We want to work with people who need to be heard. I don't care if you have two Twitter followers. It's not about that. We're not about your social status. We're not about finding. It's not strength in numbers for us. It's about pedagogy and good teaching and learning. I love it. Yeah. And you're absolutely right on that. And I mean, and, Going back to, like you said, you know, pandemic for a lot of us was kind of a, a, a point where it's like, oh, crap, like, look at what I can do. Like now, you know, and, and that was the main reason for starting the show. I mean, I was on a podcast earlier sharing, you know, when did this start? This started April 10th after pandemic because it was a way to connect educators. And what I wanted to do is I want educators to share their experience so others can know that they're not alone in this, that what's happening here is happening elsewhere. And they can connect. And that was pretty much the show. It's connecting educators one show at a time. But now I'm, I added something to that. I said, now I'm connecting educators and creators one show at a time because I feel that there are many people that are out there, like you said, that have not had the opportunity to share their passion, that they're doing great things, but because it becomes a numbers game. It's like, how many followers, how many podcast downloads do you have? And it discourages people because they everybody has a story to tell and everybody can learn from that story, but nobody gives them the time of day because you're not in this circle or in that circle. And I think what you're doing is something that is wonderful because you're giving, you're actually giving an opportunity to amplify, you know, educator voices and those, those educators that have been silenced, you know, for a while are now speaking and they're speaking boldly. They're speaking loudly. They're speaking proudly and they are sharing some amazing things. And it's like, wow, where was this? It was always there, but nobody took a chance. And that's what I love about what Codebreaker is doing. I, I, that man, that means the world to me. Uh, I feel early on, I was silenced the year I won the prime minister's award for teaching. And that's not a shameless promotion. It's just providing some context that our prime minister gives out like a dozen awards a year out of hundreds of thousands of teachers. So to be nominated by a colleague and to win was being nominated by a colleague is what I'm more proud of than the award. Okay. But that same year was the year my district declined me for grant funding, told me coding was a fad, yada, 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 you know, shut it down, shut it down, shut it down. Um, so to be recognized at sort of that national level, there was no way in heck I could really, really, really continue to be complacent, if you will. Um, I, I was just done with it. I just, there's so many things, there's so many rules and, and hierarchies that we, there's so much ego. It's just, we just need to do a detox. We need to do a cleanse. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Oh my goodness. It's like, uh, I'm having a wonderful, uh, these are the type of conversations that I look for. And the, one of the things as far as, you know, being able to 
meet with uh, Codebreaker, you know, sparingly, but when I get a chance, you know, get to join in even the, the Twitter chats and, you know, it's just amazing because you really get that passion. And like you said, even though we've never met in real life, but even just through the social media presence and through the shows, also a lot of the Codebreaker EDU uh, peeps are, you know, have their live streams. They're bringing in other educators that I have never met or, or actually even heard of. But then when I hear their stories, I'm like, this is just amazing. You know, where, where has this been? This is the kind of raw, like, you know, unscripted, just real, you know, and refreshing honesty that I need to hear. That's what's going to fill me. That's what's going to help me grow as opposed to the cookie cutter everybody's saying the same thing and this is what needs to be done and yada, yada, yada. It's like, I want real, I want, that's yeah. what I want. I want the raw product because that's, what's going to help me grow. And that, I think that that's something that you guys bring. And it's just amazing because I've been able to connect with other like-minded, passionate educators that feel the same way. And now our voices are being amplified and that's what it's all about. Amplifying voices amplifying creativity, sharing that passion, and just really being change agents. Like, let's make these changes. Let's go. Let's move. <laughs> and and we, we really do hope our work speaks for itself. We are not an organization that's going to put your rainbow and sunshine quotes on Twitter and tag a million people because we're here for the retweets. We're not. We're not here for those. We're here because we want to do good work in the space and if our work is noticed, it'll get retweeted. That's our angle. There you go. I love it. It's the work it speaks for itself. And I think one of the things too, and and we're talking about, you know, numbers and people looking at social media and doing this. And maybe sometimes a lot of, you know, companies or publishers look at that stuff, you know, the numbers, you know, before they decide whether they may give you a, a chance or not, or, you know, so on. But it's it's the seeds that you're planting, you know, what, like you said, if your work goes unnoticed, it's the seeds that you're planting and you're sharing your passion, that's going to come to fruition at some point. And that right there, I think is what matters. And that's the way, like you said, that's going to get amplified. That'll get retweeted. That'll get shared. And, you know, you, you're, the work speaks for itself. Basically. That's what I'm talking about. The work, there. The work speaks for itself. Uh, that's all. That's, that's our mission. Yes. Yeah. Don't quantify your impact. That's what Amanda love says that. right there. I love it. Love it. Love so thank you, Shannon, Sharon, Omar, who are joining us this morning. Uh, also Abbott is here joining us from the UK. So it's just amazing. Thank you so much for joining us this morning here with this awesome, awesome conversation. Let's see what Omar says here. It says, I've always believed that coding is the most inclusive field. One does not to be super fast. Well, one does not have one does not have to be super fast or super strong or a specific height. It's inclusive. Everyone can code. There you go. Couldn't have said it better myself. It's that space. There's more than one way to solve the problem. I keep telling, I keep telling my educator friends, the farther you get with technology and integrating things like coding, the more planning time you're going to have. I'm no longer standing at the photocopier on my prep. I'm standing at the Keurig machine because I seem to have all kinds of time because my students are empowered. I'm tired of the student engagement narrative. Yeah, 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 happy kids. Of course, who doesn't want happy kids? But what about student empowerment? How do we encourage them to find their own passions? Well, it's near and dear to my heart to model that. So modeling the the building of Codebreaker while still teaching was a part of my teaching. Look, guys, I found something that I'm passionate about that I'm learning to monetize. What's your coding? It may not be coding, but what is your thing that you need to harness and 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 monetize? And our kid industry is going. Industry is not going back to the way it was. I do believe that we're in a freelance world. Everything is going to be outsourced, and our young people have tremendous opportunity to monetize what they are good at if we show them the path, or at least allow them to find their own path. And if we don't expose them to example coding, coding's just one example, then we close the doors on said paths. Yeah. I agree. And that's one of the things too, that drove my passion for coding. And I've always told the story, uh, my, my second to the last year in the classroom, that's when I started really implementing, like we had two Chromebook carts in our school and I checked them out 
pretty or checked one out for the whole year. I was that one teacher that just had it in the room the whole time. And I just, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to create here. This this is the lesson, but I want you to create and empowering them. And of course, those scratch was a big component of that, you know, learning. You know, I had students that were programming their own uh, solar system and they would stand there and then they'd be touching. And then, of course, they create their own reviews and you're empowering them. The code club got so big within the district or actually within our school. I was doing code clubs in the summer, which was unheard of. And then the principal was like, you know, well, one of my principals, I always tell the story. She would come in and she would always be looking at my window. And because the kids were the kids were moving around, they were talking, they were loud, they were, you know, she didn't understand. And one day my principal comes in and says, uh, Mr. Mendelson, can I talk to you? So he brings me in. He goes, uh, so I hear that your kids are just playing video games and that's all they're doing. Mm -hmm. I was like, no. He was like, do you want to come in and see what they're doing? So he came in and he saw what they were doing. I mean, they were building circuits where through scratch it says, is this, you know, a conductor or not a conductor? They were doing the coding. I just gave them the tools and they were trying to figure things out. This thing got so big that then they're like, hey, can you do this? at a district level. And then, so that was one of the things that helped me, you know, be able to move up to where I'm at to try and get this to more kids. And now, you know, through STEM camps that I run in the summer, coding is a big thing. Problem solving, you know, you've got robotics, you've got all of those things that offer students a way of, or offer students those skills that aren't just used for science, they're used for life skills. It's problem solving. It's about my three favorite words, improvising, adapting, and overcoming. And, overcome. and those are the tools that are needed now more so for our students because, like you said, the economy is changing. School is going to change. Give them the tools. Put it in their hands. And teachers, don't be scared. Don't be scared to try new things. That's what we're here for. We're here to help. We'll walk you through. We'll do what we can. But put the tools in the students' hands and be amazed. Give yeah. them a shot and be amazed. You know, over over my teaching career, I, I spent most of my time in eighth grade. So I was the teacher that had kids prior to high school here in Ontario. We have, for the most part, K to eight and then nine to 12. Not, not everywhere, but for the most part. So as an eighth grade teacher, there's a lot of autonomy in what you're doing. I'm two years after standardized testing and the year before high school. So a lot of people are like, that. you know, that elementary middle school teacher it gets left alone and that's both good and both bad. But, you know, I remember here are a couple of narratives in education that drive me bonkers. Number one, quantity makes you a good teacher. Okay. So the, if, if you get three hours of homework at night, you must have a good teacher. We have to prepare kids for the next, which drives me absolutely bonkers because kids actually, I had a superintendent come to my classroom and say, the community is is losing their minds. You're not preparing kids to high school. And I was like, finally, I'm like, I'm just, pardon my, I'm fucking done with this. How are they preparing for the kids we're sending? I'm done with using higher ed as the excuse for grades. Stop it. What are you doing for the cohort that's been in elementary school for 10 years in a play-based model? No, they can't sit for 75 minutes and write notes. That's not a skill we're teaching in elementary school. If that's a skill you want them to do, then you teach that, you know, and it, it's even at the other end. So we have play-based learning in kindergarten and then kids go to first grade and we put them in quiet rows and give them worksheets. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, right there, what you said that, Micah Shippey was on the show and he said, you know, today in pedagogy, you're still teaching, you know, like back in the day, like factory style. Everybody's in rows. Everybody's either in rows and columns and that's it. That That's yeah. the way it goes. And then, you know, they how back day in the, in the factories, they had the, the bell when work is done. We have a bell. Period is over. But they're in their rows and everything. I mean, there's just change it. Change yeah. it. I mean, that's what, what I'm I talking about, too. <laughs> What I've come to learn is that traditionally, and I'm not using that word as a negative sense as if it's traditional or progressive, I'm just providing context into a moment of time. Time has been the one constant at school, but we recognize that students all have differing abilities. So maybe 
time should be a new scaffold and education should be that new constant where everybody has an opportunity to learn and to express themselves. But as long as everything is in those increments of time and the bell dictates learning, it's not going to happen. So I have a question here, Brian, and Shannon posted this. So let's talk a little bit about this. It says empowered kids. She said, yes. Now, what do you say to educators who are afraid to release the control in general? Pragmatically, what could be the first step? What there, would you, be some of your advice? Yeah, there's definitely a process here. You you can't just release control in a classroom that's been controlled, so to speak. And I'm speaking from experience. Uh, in my seventh grade class about five years ago, in grade seven and eight, we went gradeless, thinking this is the best there's no grades. And in, on paper, that was awesome. But our kids had had grades from K to six. And kindergarten in Ontario is JKSK. So for eight years, they've had grades and then we stripped them. That didn't work. I use that as sort of the metaphor for relinquishing control. If you've been controlling in Quiet Rose under a compliant model from September to January and suddenly you let go, I do believe it probably is going to be a giant gong show. There needs to be empowerment, student passions, creativity, curiosity, opportunities for kids to feel vulnerable without fear, opportunity for kids to, to take a risk without feeling vulnerable, without other people laughing, pointing fingers at them. It, it takes a culture and it takes, I think, starting from September to do this. And when we say let go of control, I'm going to use the rabbit ears because it doesn't mean it's a free for all. It means our kids are directing their learning and we have to know our curriculum really well. When I started teaching, I thought I had to know technology really well. That's bad practice. I need to know my curriculum really well. Let the kids know the tools and devices. Let me extract the curriculum when I recognize it because then it's authentic teachable moments and let the kids drive their learning. I mean, we're steering the ship, but they've got control along that path as to where we're going. So the narrative of letting go doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. And I do believe the first step is to establish that culture, to model that, listen, I have failed. Things aren't going to go well, but you never learn anything from being perfect all the time. So try. Exactly. And I think, uh, honestly, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in the classroom is that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay that your students see that you don't quite have it together as far as maybe you had the lesson planned, but you're building that culture where the students buy in. They, they see your realness. And like you said, you're modeling real world. I mean, how often does that not happen to us as an adult, even in our personal lives where you get caught in the moment. I mean, you're bringing that into the classroom. It's no different. You've got your lesson set up. Students see you. And then they say, you know what? This didn't go the way that I wanted to. Let's let's come back to it. We'll stop. And it's okay to, you know, fix that. But then yeah. one thing I started noticing is that the students would be, hey, it's okay, Mr. Am. Don't worry about it. It didn't work. Let's try this. The students were the ones that now became the teachers and I loved it because, like you mentioned, it is such a powerful thing when you're able to empower students and they're working alongside with you, not against you, not over you. You're working together side by side. And I've always been a big proponent of the guide on the side. I, I don't feel that my students gained anything if I sat for 45 minutes or in the front of the class for 45 minutes, give it to, showing them how to do a math problem send them home where they don't have maybe some help that might or the or some resources that might help them if they're still struggling because I didn't give them enough time to practice in the classroom it's like hey you know what here's some of the basics let's get together in groups let's find different ways of modeling this let's do an abstract let's do a pictorial let's do a concrete mm -hmm. you know see it visually write it down kinesthetics you know you're 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 building that experience the students buy into it. They're actively learning. They're actively engaged rather than just sitting in rows. But going back to that, it's okay to be vulnerable. And I think for a lot of teachers, you know, one of those things is they feel that 
we always need to have that power and we are the end all solution to everything, but it's not that mm -hmm. way. And it's okay for our kids to be those problem solvers, even for us. And I always said, I, I would show kids a little bit of scratch in the morning by my fourth class. I'm the one that looked like the expert, but it was thanks to them because of what I learned through them. So it's a learning experience. Yeah. And that's one thing that I loved in the classroom. And, and oh, yeah. speaking from my own experience, I'm not by any means making broad strokes about education around the globe, just my own, my own experience. You had mentioned data and data plays a large role in a lot of what I think are some of the barriers or the issues that we need to overcome. For starters, I've experienced administrators who almost in many ways want to rate their school based on how well their standardized test scores are. And so we apply merit to that. There's badges associated with having good data. And if you don't have good data, then you're taking it personally. You're doing something wrong. And so that's where the ego can find itself in schools. That's where there is an entry point for people to uh, gloat's not the right word, but just just that that pat on the back and so for others it makes us fearful to want to try new things because if it doesn't work then then maybe my school's not going to be in the top five in the newspaper when they only print whatever the final results are which is just dumb but on that same conversation when i was taught to learn to code or at least i was a self-taught coder in the 90s before i went to university we were told that Failing in computer science is important because your job is to solve problems using code. And in education, the definition of failure means typically you have to stay in at recess or repeat a process or worse off, repeat an entire course. Apologies for my Stevie Nicks dog. So in one conversation at school, we preach this risk-taking and learning from failure. We throw outside. But then we test kids, which tells them making mistakes is wrong. If you make a mistake on a test, it's bad. But but we're not having a test today, guys. So go learn to code and do a robot thing. And if you screw up, that's okay. It's very, 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 very contradictory. And something you said that I'm a big advocate for is ditching grades. You had mentioned empowerment and having kids work with scratch and having conversations those are things, creativity is not something you can standardize. By definition, that's contradictory to what it means to be creative. If we are going to grade kids, we have to provide quantity. And for so long, quantity has been an amount of correctness, particularly in a math classroom. How many questions did you get right? But I never evaluate my kids in phys ed based on how many foul shots they can make out of 10 because they're all going to fail. So why, why am I doing that in math? Metaphorically, they're almost one and the same, so to speak. But then the challenge becomes when I'm watching kids do amazing things in a makerspace experience and creating wicked awesome content, building websites that change the world, I have to somehow articulate a number and put it on a report card. And that's where it falls apart. For the last however many years, decades, we've shifted how we instruct our lessons. But we haven't done very much on the other side of things. We haven't changed very much in how we evaluate our students. I'm not talking assessment as in good feedback, assessment for learning, assessment as learning. I'm talking about assessment of learning, the evaluation side. How do you quantify kids making projects that go out and change the world? How do you tell them, for starters, your project's awesome, but it's not 100%, but then yet, you know, it just, it falls apart. Um, and that's, I think, where the bulk of my work is headed. That's where a lot of the research we do at Codebreaker, pedagogically, we're big advocates for constructivist learning and, and encouraging mistakes in math, encouraging mistakes in a subject area that traditionally is scored based on a quantity of correct answers is kind of a, a radical thing. But we use coding to open that door to have those conversations because 90% of the time kids write code, it doesn't work the first time through. And that's the moment innovation begins. The debugging process is when the kids really, and it's intrinsically motivating, right? Our kids want to fix it. 
They do. And I agree with you on that uh, aspect. And one of the comments I made, and Amanda was on our show, Amanda Macias, who's joining us, she was in her show and we we're talking about standardized testing, but she mentioned in that and she quoted, she goes, you know, but our kids aren't standardized, you know, so we go through that. But, you know, going back to that classroom experience that you mentioned, I mean, I loved, I had Code Club in our, my school for those last two years that I was there. And I told, and this is what I told my principal, I said, look, I'm, I know this is a code club and they normally offer a stipend for a club, but I told them, I don't want you to pay me a stipend. All I want you to do is just pay for me to go to TCEA and we'll call it even. So, you know, I saved him some money, but I got some benefit because I learned some of those tools there. But when I started the code club, I started it first for fifth and sixth, my first year, because I didn't know what I was getting into. But once I saw the students and, you know, they came in and they were excited just to learn new things. And then of course, like you mentioned, the debugging process. And then all of a sudden, the following year, I included fourth, fifth, and sixth. Well, d- during that time, I had a, some bro- a brother and sister that were staying, but then their, their little brother was in kinder. So they were like, can he stay, you know, while our mom picks us up? He came in and he was working with the Ozobots and just the look on his face when he was able to figure out why the little Ozobot would spin and everything. I mean, the, that process, that curiosity and creativity is something that to me is near, very near and dear to me just because I love it. And amplifying creativity is my mission. But I was talking to Tisha Poncio and we were talking about as her students got older and she does like middle school and she works with high school. She asked them a question once and said, you know, the creativity, it's like, when do you feel that maybe you've lost a little bit of that creative process? And a lot of her students said at about third grade, well, third grade just so happens to be when they start doing standardized testing. So it seems like there's more focus on just A, B, C, D, and E rather than actually focusing on hands-on creativity, uh, creative ways of solving those problems that are still going to get you the results, whether it's A, B, C, and D, but you're allowing them to think critically, problem solve, and building those skills that are cross-curricular, you know, in any way. So, I mean, that's just what I saw. And I remember a story of having some kids that were in the code club and it code club ended at 4.15. The students called their parents and said, mom, dad, we're staying till five. I said, I can stay a little later because they were adamant about debugging a program that they wrote. And I have a little bit of, of film that I took and I shared it with the principal. I said, look, they stayed till five o'clock until they were able to figure out this code and they did not want to leave. Some of those students ended up going to a different district that offered a little bit more of that tech stuff. Um, so I, I, I was hurt because I was like, oh man, I can't believe I lost them, you know, because they're great students. But again, they, they were chasing that, that they loved and they wanted to pursue their passion. So, yeah. yeah, it was just one of those things, but we, that you, you've, you hit on two points for me. We surveyed our students and we found from uh, junior kindergarten. So we have JKSK, junior kindergarten, senior kindergarten, right through to grade 12, the correlation to student engagement and the results from our kids, it was a backwards check mark. Okay. So it starts on this side. I'm going to do it this way. Cause I'm backwards mirror image on the camera, kindergarten engagement way up here. And then it starts to decline. And then it went up slightly again towards the end of their high school experience. So a backwards check mark. And like you said about third grade, we do standardized testing in third grade, sixth grade, nine and 10 as well here in Ontario. So the the correlation between student engagement in kindergarten, less and less as like progress through the grades and then up again slightly as they leave high school, those are the two places where student choice exists the most in kindergarten And when they start doing course selection in grade 10, 11, and 12, when they get their electives, the correlation to between student engagement was right there spot on with student choice. And and that really hit home for us. And we started to try and flip our school culture. And we did it to a point where 90% of our eight, seven and eighth grade students were not coming to school on snow days in our first year. And by year five, we had 90% of our students coming to school on snow days. And we said, listen, these are content days. Everything's on Google Classroom. Why are you here? And they said, FOMO. And that's when we knew we were doing something right. We found 
the less we talked about standardized testing, the better our scores got. It wasn't about the data or the test. It was about the culture, the engagement, and the empowerment that led to success as a whole, all of us. I love it. And, you know, going with what you said, that principal at the last school that I was at, even to this day, he always tells me, hey, if you ever want to come back to fifth grade, hey, if you want because of the impact that was made. And he said, you know, the first year he said, Hey, you know, I just want to let you know that after you left, he goes, our, our attendance wasn't as good for fifth grade. And it was because like you said, you know, students didn't want to miss class because it's like, Hey, today we're going to code. We're going to do this. Or today we're going to work with the Chromebooks today. We're going to create today. We're going to do this. And so still to this day, he says, Hey man, if you ever want to come back to fifth grade, I'll take you like in a second, I love you it. know, but yeah. because of that, because of that creative component and yeah, so I love it. So it goes with what you were saying, you know, those correlations, but student empowerment, we talk about it a lot, but are we doing it? What are we doing? I mean, are we just talking about it and then well, just kind of twiddling our thumbs? Yeah. You know, Some, yeah. something that drives me crazy is, and then I'm guilty of doing this, you know, you put up the, those those anchor charts, things to do when you're done, right? And then a kid gets their work done and then chooses from that list and then we celebrate their initiative. Is that initiative? You just gave them a list of five to choose from and told them that's what they have to do when they're done. But now you're celebrating the fact that they followed the rules from start to finish. I don't think that's initiative. There's a lot. It's very, very complex here because I used to do that. And we actually report on soft skills in Ontario on the front page. An initiative is something we evaluate. And I would give kids E or excellent for initiative if they did something from the anchor chart that, of course, we generated that list together. Of course, me and my kids generated the list of things to do when you're done. But they're still giving me the textbook answers. Read a book. Find the notes. You know what I mean? Like it's and and. What truly does it mean to demonstrate initiative? And I've had, for example, I had a student with autism who, in a compliant model, never demonstrated initiative. But if you think outside the box, always demonstrated initiative because he was always doing what he wanted to do. He was always learning about what he wanted to learn about. Some teachers would say, that's a fail. He's not demonstrating initiative. Other teachers would celebrate the fact that the student with autism is going to go out and change the world because he's not listening to you. He's going out and he's doing whatever he wants anyway. And let's harness and channel that. Oh, man. So <laughs> let me let me ask you something here real quick. And it might just kind of go off a little bit on that. But just so people get to know you a little bit more. And so they see your energy. They're feeding off of it. They know you're being real. They know you're being genuine. But, you know, what is it that motivates Brian Aspinall? you know, to get up in the morning and go? Everything. Everything. I I want to expose as many kids to computer science as possible. Reason being, I know what it did for me. And I know what it did for some of the kids in my class. Not all. I'm not painting with broad strokes here. But if we don't, and, and, and it's no different than, say, the arts or the teacher is passionate about music. It's something I'm so strongly passionate about. I've been able to monetize through it. I've turned it into a career. I want kids to every kid in the world to be exposed to it so that they can decide for themselves if it's for them, number one, and number two, to find their own code. I talk about recently I jumped out of an airplane because it was something I was always terrified to do. And I say to people, what, what's your skydive? It's not jumping out of the airplane, but what's the one thing you have yet to do that you want to do? And what is holding you back? Because if the pandemic's taught us anything, it's life is way too damn short. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to go in a little deeper here with another question, just because I, get, I told you I was going to kind of put you on the spot here. But what do most people misunderstand about you? Oh, well, for a lot of years, uh, I was Mr. Coder who just coded in his classroom all the time from nine to five. That's all we did. That's all we did. And, you know, he's, that's all he does in his classroom. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything else. I think that there's a misconception on social media. I think that there's a lot about me people don't know. And I hate to say it, but I do think that there's a lot of assumptions made 
Number one, uh, I present as a white male. I do have a large Twitter following with a verified account. And I think I get lumped into categories as a result of that. I'm taken at face value, if you will. Rather than critiquing my body of work, uh, I've been made fun of online from people I don't know. And I, I do believe it's just because of the perception of a social media account. I'm just going to look at this person with a large following and immediately call them an idiot just because we're in the era of cancel culture. Wow. All right. That's a good answer. So again, we're going to go deep here. So this one might be, you know, going along those lines, but just really bringing out your passion and what this is about. So I know we talked a little bit about it. Like, you know, you're talking about Codebreaker going full on, full force. So what is next for you and Codebreaker EDU? Uh, top secret stuff. Codebreaker EDU. <laughs> so just this week, we, uh, we had some early calls with some school districts in Alaska. We're looking to establish a two to three year plan to do some professional development. Um, we're big on culture. I'm Canadian. We're big on uh, Indigenous people of Canada protecting some of the languages that are spoken and not written and, you know, and all of those other pieces. So we use coding and Codebreaker to to keep, if you will, traditions alive. Uh, we're, we're big on small community beliefs and all of those pieces. So to work with districts like those in rural Alaska to create professional development for, for parents and staff and students moving forward is something we're really, really excited about. We had a call this week with some educators in Australia looking to um, do some work there. But for me, I want to bring our team to the, the national conference level. Our crew was supposed to be a 10-person show at FETC this year. We all know what happened with FETC going virtual and things of that nature. Um, but for Codebreaker next, we want to move heavily more into stronger professional development. We want to amplify the people in our circle who are doing amazing things to start creating their own kind of courses. I, I, I said it before, I think that freelance is the future. And you know what? That might just be education too. And so in the United States, if you get credit hours to do professional development, I hope maybe you can take some of our courses. We're not here to monetize them. We're just here to share best practices through teaching and learning. Because admittedly, when I was with a school district, I, I taught in the silo of my classroom, which was affiliated with the silo of my school, which was affiliated with the silo of my school district, and all of those goals, which was affiliated with the silo of my ministry under my province. And the fact that we've gone global allows us to have critical conversations beyond those blinders what works for you may not work for them and that's okay so heavy heavy on the professional development side um <laughs> i was told once that kid books don't sell so a big part of our mission is to supplement our quote-unquote teacher books with supplementary student read-alouds in the classroom. I'll pick on Lori Coroner, Dr. Lori, uh, with her book, Actually I Can. It uh, came out in January. She's now working on the Actually I Can book series for kids, which is about resiliency, rigor, growth mindset, perseverance, all of those pieces. So now you, not only do you get the teacher professional development, but you get the resources that you can actually use with your students. And that's something we, we, we're proud of. We don't think there's very many people doing that. Um, across the globe, we're looking at exploring uh, possible television shows for some of our, our kid book characters. We want to get up every day and create content. That is amazing. That is wonderful. And I think that's something that's great, that is much needed. And of course, you mentioned, you know, the courses, you know, getting PD credit for that or just an offering, you know. And I think I like your honesty that you said, look, what we have to offer, <clears throat> you know, may work here. It may not, but we're going to show you best practices, and this is what is there. Because oftentimes with PD, and I did a paper on this uh, for one of my classes. You know, it was you know Twitter PD versus real PD. You know, and in person, and oftentimes in person, it's so impersonal, and it's just a cookie cutter approach that doesn't really take into account demographics. It doesn't take into account your infrastructure. It doesn't take into account really your curriculum. It's just somebody that is might be, you know, uh, good on social media, 
they bring it, but they really don't know you. And so to have somebody to come in and say, be honest and say, look, this is what has worked here. This has not worked here. But how can we meet where what you have and what I have can possibly meet together in the middle to create something successful that is specific to you? And I think yeah. that's something that's great. The, my my wife and I have done some consulting professional development work with a school district in Hawaii the last two years in a row. Admittedly, I'm from Canada. I don't know anything about Hawaii. And we went right after the most recent volcano. So we thought, you know, if we're going to do any kind of professional development with staff in Hawaii, we need to experience Hawaii. So we went for six weeks. We went three weeks each time on the ground, Airbnb, Uber, not resorts. Like, I want to see real Hawaii and we immersed ourselves in the culture. We talked to people. We didn't eat at the we didn't eat at the Bob Evans. We ate at the local whatever that the grandma is the cook. And it was all authentic food. And that really shed some light into what we're dealing with when you walk into the school. For starters, in Ontario, we have very cold winters, as you know. Well, Hawaii, their schools didn't even have glass on the windows. They were all shutters. And I'm like, of course, it's never below 75 degrees. I'm seeing palm trees and smart boards. It looks like my classroom at home, but not really, you know, and their classrooms are all portables. It's not a building. And they have they have kind of these, these shelter things between the portables because in parts of Hawaii, it's never not raining. So when kids walk from class to class, they're they're underneath these things. Well, Kids in my high school, they go from this classroom to that classroom, you know, down the hallway. Those are the things that we we wanted to see before we could try and even not paint a broad stroke that this is how you should be doing this because this is how it works in education. Now, there's too many broad strokes in education. And I think that's great that you said immersing yourself in there. So you're seeing things through their lens and then seeing what you have to offer and bring it together. And that's something that's important. Love it. All right, last question, my friend, before we wrap up. If you and I were to trade places, tell me one thing about yourself that I should know. <laughs> I, mean, I, I know you've said a lot, but one thing <laughs> that I should know. Uh, you better like needles because I'm covered in tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe it. How many? I have... I have 14 tattoos to date. We used to collect shot glasses. And when we adopted more of a minimalist lifestyle, we were like, those are things and we don't ever use them and they collect dust. So we've started to collect them all over the world. And it's kind of become my, my professional development souvenirs, if you will. So if you could just give me a moment. I got that one in Hawaii the last time I was there. I said I was going to immerse myself in the culture. I went and got a tattoo prior to my keynote, prior to me doing professional development. I got this one in Hawaii the first time I was there. Uh, I got the waves in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada when I was there for a week doing some schoolwork with kids. I got the anchor in Halifax, Nova Scotia when I was out there doing work with their school district. Uh, Mexico, Mexico. Well, this one was Windsor, Ontario, and I've, I've got a few others, but started to collect them from the the, the cities and the towns that I've, I've got to go to as a result of the work Codebreaker does. So, you know what, to answer your question, what gets you up in the morning? It's these things, because I know they all have a story, and uh, I want to keep adding to that story. Man, that, that is wonderful and profound, because... You know, you have a great story. Codebreaker is a great story. And I definitely, you know, now you're amplifying the stories of other educators. And that is something that we need. And it's so refreshing. And that's what I love. And so thank you, Brian, for being here today. Also, I want to thank you for allowing my podcast to also be there on the Codebreaker page as well and, and getting to collaborate with you on that. And so I'm just really excited. And because, again, you you are all about teacher voice, amplifying and, you know, shaking up, shaking up education. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty today. Any oh, last great, words? Grateful to be here. Uh, any last words? It's okay to be where you are. It's not okay to stay there. We got in this business as lifelong learners. And the second you feel comfortable, it's time for a new discomfort in education is the new norm. And we have to embrace the fact that uh, feeling anxious and vulnerable is 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 okay, but but on the note of anxiety, 
We want our devices to work better, so we unplug them for a while. And the same goes for ourselves. Don't feel guilty for taking a me moment, shutting down five o'clock on a Friday and not opening your email until Monday. My wife, also an educator, we joke that teaching is running full speed on the treadmill from September to June. And then we go boom at the end of June. It's the only profession in the world in which we all put on weight in the summer. Don't feel guilty for taking time for yourself in July and August or spring break or December or whatever. If we want kids to be their best, we need to be at our very best. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate you. And I did pop in the links. Make sure that you check out Codebreaker. Go to the website. Uh, check out Brian on Twitter as well. Codebreaker on Twitter. Just follow them. They are an amazing crew. They are going to be doing some amazing things. So be on the lookout for them because they're definitely shaking up education. So Brian, thank you so much. And for all of our listeners, again, thank you so much for you joining us. Uh, those of you that are going to be re-watching, you know where to find us. Go to myedtech.life, myedtech.life. And as always, my friends, until next time, stay techie.